Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I support a growing community of top climate and ESG leaders as the Chief Experience Officer at Nations Wealth, and I'm an advisor to the climate practice at IDEO. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and when it comes to climate action, I know I'll be a lifelong learner always looking to have more impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you found us. Sign up for updates and suggest ideas for future episodes at investedinclimate.com. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Thanks for joining. As the impact investing ecosystem has grown up, and I've been involved in this space really my whole career the last 20 years, and I've seen it go from infancy to where it is now, is that it requires quite a bit of domain expertise. So you find very specialized and niche strategies, which is certainly a promising thing and an advantage in private markets, but there's kind of a certain level of specialization that impact investing takes a lot of GPs to an even greater degree and narrows our universe. So our approach of investing in three really, really big market opportunities and impact areas is quite unique because we're not that narrow. And we're able to do it because we are fund investors and company investors. And so it's almost like we sit in this very important seat and have this vantage point of seeing everything in the private impact investing ecosystem can spot and identify the themes, trends, business models, that we think are most likely to succeed and avoid the pitfalls and some of the negatives and drawbacks that come from being hyper-specialized. Hey everyone, this episode focuses on impact investing and the particular approach of an impact investing firm based in Chicago named Impact Engine. Now that I've said the word impact four times, I should probably unpack the jargon. This class of investing aims to create direct, measurable, social and environmental impact alongside a financial return. It's related to but distinct from ESG investing, which doesn't necessarily have specific impact goals so much as it aims to avoid harm or risk by considering environmental, social, and governance factors. Global impact investing has surpassed $1 trillion annually, and a top focus area is climate. According to a recent report by the Global Impact Investing Network, 74% of impact investors invest in climate action. So I was thrilled to zoom into the approach of one firm and learn about their climate investing strategy. Today, we're joined by Impact Engine's partner and chief investment officer, Priya Parrish, as well as Chris Wu, a vice president who leads their environmental sustainability investments. We talk about Impact Engine's history, approach, and investment thesis its portfolio of investments in climate funds and private companies, from food tech to mobility to energy efficiency, how they see the climate investment space today, and what they see coming next year. Lots of great insights in this peek into the impact investing world. Enjoy. Priya and Chris, welcome to Invested in Climate. Great to have you here today. Thanks. Great to be here. Thank you. Great. And I know that your firm is based in Chicago, and it looks like, Priya, you are on campus at the University of Chicago today. Are you downtown or in Hyde Park? I'm in Hyde Park at the business school here, yes. Oh, fantastic. And Chris, what about you? Where are you dialing in from? Dialing in from Northbrook, which is a suburb north of Chicago. Fantastic. Know both places very well as a native Chicagoan. 
Well, I'm excited to dive in and get to know you and get to know the work that you're doing. And let's get oriented just by hearing a bit about your backgrounds and your roles and really how you came to do the work that you're doing. Priya, would you mind kicking us off? So I'm a chief investment officer and one of the four partners at Impact Engine. And so I lead our investment team across our investment strategies and serve on our investment committee as well. And I'm really excited to be part of our firm. I joined five years ago. Fantastic. Thanks, Priya. Chris, over to you. Yeah, Jason, really great to be here. I'm a vice president at Impact Engine. I've been with the firm for five years. My primary role is to really take the lead on looking at any investment opportunities we see related to sustainability and climate across our direct investing work and also to support our fund investing team anytime they're looking at a potential investment in a fund whose thesis centers on climate. Fantastic. Let's dive in a bit more and learn a bit more of the specifics about your firm. Priya, will you help us get oriented? What is Impact Engine and what makes it stand out, especially in a crowded space with so many different financial service firms? We are essentially an institutional impact investment platform. We've been around 11 years and we have certainly evolved over time. So we actually started out as just a social entrepreneurship accelerator back in 2012 when accelerators were really an important part of the venture community and in kickstarting the impact investing ecosystem as well. But today we manage a number of commingled vehicles as well as serve as a sub-advisor for separate accounts for larger investors as well. And across these various vehicles, we essentially have the capability to invest across a few different verticals. The first thing is that everything we do has to strive to generate market rate competitive financial returns like you would get in a similar venture capital or private equity fund offering. But we're also striving to generate measurable impact in the areas of environmental sustainability, health equity, or economic opportunity. That certainly narrows the venture and private equity universe. So the second thing is, again, we are investing across stages. So everything from seed through buyout is fair game for us, but only equity investments. And then the third kind of spectrum of our investment mandate is that we invest in funds. We can co-invest with those GPs, but we also do our own proprietary work, finding and investing in companies directly ourselves, mostly in the venture space. And so across those three angles, we kind of get a center of the Venn diagram that we focus on within these markets. What's really unique about us, obviously the impact angle is certainly true. And it's not just climate and the recent increase in activity in climate, but we've really been seasoned in deep impact investors for 11 years now. But what's also unique about that is that as the impact investing ecosystem has grown up, and I've been involved in this space really my whole career the last 20 years, and I've seen it go from infancy to where it is now, is that it requires quite a bit of domain expertise. So you find very specialized and niche strategies which is certainly a promising thing and an advantage in private markets, but there's kind of a certain level of specialization that impact investing takes a lot of GPs to an even greater degree and narrows our universe. So our approach of investing in three really, really big market opportunities and impact areas is quite unique because we're not that narrow. And we're able to do it because we are fund investors and company investors. And so it's almost like we sit in this very important seat and have this vantage point of seeing everything in the private impact investing ecosystem can spot and identify the themes, trends, business models that we think are most likely to succeed and avoid the pitfalls and some of the negatives and drawbacks that come from being hyper-specialized. So with that, we're able to build these very unique and risk-managed portfolios 
for those seeking to bring impact investing within their allocations. That's great. And I want to dig more into this dual approach more of investing directly in companies as well as in other funds. But first, give us a sense of who your clients are. Absolutely. So they really range from high net worth investors all the way through institutional investors from university endowments and foundations and other investor institutional investor types. We're very intentional about this. Our firm is actually structured as a public benefit corporation with a mission to grow the ecosystem of investors and companies driving financial returns linked to social outcomes. And that obviously informs the way we invest, but also who our clients are and that we try to continue to be really accessible, to be highly transparent and educational, to bring more and more people into this field through our work. One thing that's seemingly unique about Impact Engine is your partnership with Alliance Bernstein, a leading global investment manager with $680 billion in assets under management. Tell us about the partnership that you recently struck with them. If you step back and look over the last couple of decades as Impact Investing went from being a fairly experimental thing just within family offices to actual institutional firms like ours, it's been something that's been difficult to scale, to be honest partially because of client demand and some of the early resistance when there wasn't kind of proven track records, partially because of behavioral biases, and and partly because of some views about the depth of the opportunity set. So a number of firms that got started early on ended up being swallowed up by and acquired by very large asset managers, for example, Goldman Sachs buying imprint. And we continue to see that trend. There's been a lot of consolidation, everything from GPs to advisors to fund of funds as more and more large financial services firms, they want to be able to offer something in the impact space. It's not a bad thing. Our industry is filled with consolidation and it brings the kind of scale that's necessary to do good work. But we think there's also a benefit to having some independence and firms that are purely, entirely, only focused on impact investing. And we're certainly not the only ones. And so our partnership with Bernstein was actually really an attempt on their part to be able to offer an authentic investment offering led by an expert in impact investing to their private client business instead of, I think, what a number of their peers did, which was develop their own impact investment-based solution. They said, let's actually find the manager who's the leader in this and partner with them to offer it. It's formally structured as we're a sub-advisor to a fund of funds that is offered on a regular basis to their private wealth business. And it's been a very great partnership where they have deep respect for our strategy and expertise and we have deep respect and are beneficiaries of their large distribution platform as well and really unique in the industry in the way that was done. Thanks, Priya. I'd love to hear a bit about how you see the opportunity to invest in climate solutions today. Chris, you're the VP specializing in environmental sustainability investments for the firm. Tell us about your investment thesis when it comes to climate. As a firm across the board, we're focused on investing in business models that align financial and environmental impact returns where the two mutually reinforce each other and the impact drives value creation in the business and the business in turn grows, growth brings the impact to scale. Within environmental sustainability specifically, we're investing in climate-focused companies, developing highly scalable solutions that are addressing climate change across a range of different sectors, from mobility and urbanization and energy resources to food and ag, as well as sustainable industry and manufacturing. At the early stage through our venture fund, We're investing primarily in seed and series A stage software or software-enabled companies with early revenues and proof points around product market fit and the impact they're driving. While at the private equity stage, we're investing typically in companies that are approaching 10 million revenue run rate or greater and that have a near-term path to profitability. 
And this fund has the ability to flex way beyond software. Thanks, Chris. Tell us how you see this particular moment in time. The macro environment has been a mixed bag for climate investors, an economic downturn mixed with favorable policies like the IRA that have really offered tailwinds to many climate companies. So how do you see the market today? Well, no doubt that new legislation such as the IRA has opened up new markets, in particular in areas like low-carbon hydrogen and carbon removal, as well as the transferability of clean energy tax credits. The positive effects of this are really only just beginning to take root. It'll be long-lasting for many years to come. But I'd say on the other hand, what we've been seeing is certainly a drop in climate tech investments through the first half of the year, not as steep of a decline as we've seen in the overall market. So it has been a bit more insulated but certainly not immune to some of those macro trends that have been causing a lot of volatility. At the early stage, the deal count from what we've seen has stayed pretty steady. It's actually maybe increased slightly, but the average deal size has decreased significantly and valuations have compressed for sure as well. Where you see the biggest contraction, I would say, is at the growth stage, where the bars really set high at this point and investors are being super selective and disciplined about the investments they're making. I also believe that the companies ultimately that are going to be positioned to do especially well in this environment are the ones that have those sound fundamentals and can make a strong business case to their clients that don't really rely on any sort of green premium. Let's get specific and talk about a few of your investments to really make your thesis more tangible. And let's start with the funds that you've invested in. And again, we talked before about how you've got this dual approach of investing directly in companies as well as in funds. I'd love to start with the funds and get a sense of the funds that you've invested in and what you look for. A lot of people, when they invest in funds, their reason for doing it really has to do with the particular mandate or size of their investment team or portfolio. For us, it's really about getting access to deep domain thematic sector experts, not only their pipeline and their portfolio, which we invest in their funds fully. But also just to have a thought partner and someone to go back and forth and share notes on and collaborate with, with our own direct investments as well. So there really is this dual purpose. We're trying to find what we think are going to end up being years from now, demonstrated track records of the very best in the climate space across all stages from pre-seed through buyout and invest in a way that actually helps them achieve that as well. So sometimes we're investing in brand new funds in their the first fund one and in the first close, we're happy to do that. Many people follow us, but we're also happy to invest in firms that might be on fund four, five, six, and quite a bit more established. Now, the impact investing industry as a labeled fund industry is quite new. So there aren't very many fund fours, five, sixes, and beyond, which actually restricts a lot of allocators from investing in this space at all. And that's part of why we are happy to invest in fund ones. I've built my career actually backing new managers and we believe we have the skill set and ability to pick the very best from the beginning and have a strong hit rate there. And so we're looking for people who bring that expertise in their careers. Maybe they've spent their time previously either investing, potentially, honestly, in the traditional oil and gas or the energy sector or the industrial sector, but there was kind of a personal climate passion or interest and expertise they developed. And they also have operators on their team who have grown up in these industries or they've grown up in the mobility industry, right, or the food and ag industry. But they're complementing that with a particular understanding of what's really driving climate change and what are the solutions to focus on. We're certainly looking for the expertise. We're looking for people who are building firms for the long term and who have the humility and openness to external feedback loops to engage with us because we do tend to form impact advisory councils 
we're quite actively involved. And it's really, again, to help make them better into whatever they're trying to become. So some of these funds are labeled impact, Jason, and some of them are not. We don't really care. I think the label is quite misleading. Sometimes actually we'll veer you to fund managers that actually care nothing about impact and have very little expertise and vice versa. Some of the examples that I can cite, and I'll try to give you three in different stages. One in the early stage, we are investors in Acre Ventures. They are an early stage food and ag fund. So they, again, bring a range of expertise and experience from investing, operating entrepreneurial experience in the food and ag sector, both from their own team, as well as a number of venture partners, operating partners, advisors in their network as well. And our involvement with them, again, it's that everyone thinks all food and ag funds are impactful. That's not true, actually, or they're all actually contributing something to climate solutions. Actually, that couldn't be further from the truth. We've met almost 50 food and ag funds, and very few of them actually have that expertise. So we're working with them on how to operationalize and start to formalize the impact that we know they're having through the companies they're selecting. Carbon Direct is a growth stage investor that really focuses on the carbon management and carbon capture economy proven technologies that are beginning to be commercialized. It is the investment arm of Carbon Direct, the advisory business, which has a number of climate scientists and PhDs who bring a lot of the technical expertise to be able to identify which of these solutions actually from a scientific perspective are likely to do what they're saying they're going to do, but the investment expertise as well to know what actually makes for a, a great investment. And finally, in the buyout stage, Aura Partners, which is an industrial decarbonization growth and buyout fund. So they really look at the industrial sector and businesses that are enabling decarbonization, as well as businesses, industrial businesses themselves that are decarbonizing and investing typically in a controlling fashion. And they bring a whole host of operating partners, again, with expertise in these industries. And each of these cases, again, we're quite involved in trying to make them better while also lending ourselves access to what we think are really the foremost experts in the food and ag, the carbon management, and the industrial decarbonization sectors that you could not have in one house otherwise. Priya, I saw that one of your requirements for the funds that you invest in is that they sign an impact side letter and also that they report impact metrics to you. This begs a bunch of questions. First, what is an impact side letter? Is it binding? And how does the side letter make a difference? And second, what sort of metrics are you looking for from funds investing in sustainability strategies? When it comes to investing in funds, we always have side letters with everyone we invest in. And honestly, that's just a good practice for any institutional investor in funds and not that different. And some of the things we look for are pretty standard and typical. But when it relates to certain impact terms in our side letters, we're really looking for the manager to confirm that their investment strategy and process and decision making is centered around really considering and striving for high impact in addition to their financial return target. So commitment to doing that, a commitment to engaging with us in a way where we can continue to give feedback. And this is typically formalized as an advisory board member where we create impact advisory councils. And then finally, as you cited, that they report impact. Now, our firm has always prided ourselves on being fairly practical and common sense. One of the barometers we've always had with our own entrepreneurs we invest in is that if the impact KPI is not something they find valuable or it's administratively burdensome and they have to literally employ an entire full-time employee just to get the thing done, then it's probably not the right KPI. It needs to be valuable, practical, relevant, and not time-consuming. When we invest in funds, we're really there, again, as a sparring partner, not to tell them what to do. They know their own business. They know their own market. They know their own company. 
but really be that person who's going to both hold them accountable, but also give them feedback. Hey, have you thought about this methodology or this approach or for this business? Have you thought about this angle and why are you doing it this way to really just make them better at what they're actually striving to do anyway? Let's turn now to some of the companies that you've invested directly in. And since we know that you have relationships with some larger venture and private equity funds, I'm curious if those relationships help with deal sourcing or if you're sourcing investments all on your own. Yeah, our relationships with other fund managers has definitely been a huge help with deal sourcing. Our deal pipeline continues to come from a variety of sources. We continue to source investments on our own. We strive to take a thesis-driven approach and actively seek out or hunt for opportunities based on the results of our own research. We also see a lot of inbound deals, both from entrepreneurs reaching out directly, as well as referrals from portfolio companies and other investors in the network. The great relationships we've been building with these GPs through our fund investing work is really supercharged the number of referrals and co-investment opportunities that we're seeing. As these relationships continue to deepen and we foster new relationships with more GPs, I only see this growing and accelerating over time. Chris, Priya, since you're invested through the funds, what prompts you to invest directly in companies as well? Is it purely driven by an opportunity when you see a company that you want to own? Or is it driven by specific clients and their particular interests or something else? In terms of our direct investing work in the companies, it's primarily driven by where we see the most compelling opportunities to generate outsized financial returns, as well as strong environmental impacts for our fund and our LPs. And I think in terms of the co-investing, which is what I think you're driving at, we really at the PE stage, for instance, have the ability to flex way beyond software companies. And when we're co-investing alongside a lead investor that we know and trust, this becomes a really important aspect of our approach at that stage, in particular in sustainability, where these are physical challenges and they often require a physical solution that has a hardware component to it. So when we see a co-investment opportunity, for example, that is right in the sweet spot of that fund's strategy and it plays to the strengths and core competencies of those GPs, that's when we start to get excited and lean in on some of those co-investment deals. It's hard not to notice that food is definitely a major theme for you and you've invested in companies like Afresh, Full Harvest, Matt Smarts, and Market Wagon. And that's on top of the funds like Acre and Bloom Equity. So tell us a bit about a couple of the startups you invested in and why. Yeah, sure thing. I could start with Afresh, which is a perishable food inventory management system that allows grocery stores to reduce food waste and increase revenue. Grocery stores using Afresh, on average, they're reducing their food waste by 25% or more. And at the beginning of this year, they successfully completed a system-wide rollout with Albertsons, which is really exciting. So there's a fresh as well as Motsmart, which is a European surplus food platform. Now, Motsmart sells surplus inventory from leading fast-moving consumer goods brands at 20 to 90% discounts. And they've expanded from their initial footprint in the Nordics into Germany, which has gone really well. So those are a couple that I might highlight from the portfolio addressing food waste. Food waste is definitely a topic I've covered a couple of times, and it's always something I love talking about since it's such a powerful climate solution and also often cited as one of the biggest pathways to emissions reductions. And it's something we all contribute to every day. So I'd really be curious, since you're investing in this space, tell us a bit about the state of the food waste startup space and also what other kinds of companies you're hoping to find and invest in. It's a really great time for an investor that's focused on addressing food waste. There are a number of different companies that have cropped up focused on addressing food waste at various points along the value chain. 
And as you mentioned, we have already been quite active in this space and are excited about the companies that we have in the portfolio, which combined cover a broad swath of that spectrum. One area where we haven't yet made an investment in is a solution that is addressing food waste at the consumer level, like post-purchase. That turns out to be a point in the value chain where there is a significant amount of food waste that does occur. So I'm definitely on the lookout for solutions. There are several startups, for example, that we've come across that are focused on creating a tech-enabled solution to composting for individuals. And I think we'll definitely be on the lookout for other companies kind of focused at that point in the value chain. Another company you invested in is Market Wagon. They don't so much focus on food waste as they focus on shortening the supply chain in food and connecting people to more local sources. And on first glance, it doesn't look that much different than an old-fashioned CSA or community-supported agriculture membership, memberships that really allow consumers to buy directly from farms. A challenge with these businesses often scale. Tell us about what the scale Market Wagon is hoping to achieve and what you think they can do. Market Wagon saw rapid growth during the pandemic as people grew more comfortable with doing their grocery shopping online. And this for us represented a really interesting kind of intersectionality in terms of impact across both the environmental sustainability impact theme for us, as well as the economic opportunity theme where you're supporting local food producers as well and enabling them to grow and scale their businesses. The company has experienced some challenges in kind of maintaining that growth and expansion into new geographies over time, to your point about some of the difficulties that these businesses can face as they look to scale. In response, they've adjusted accordingly by focusing solely on the hubs located in markets that they identify as being more profitable and sustainable and having the right suite of different offerings that local food producers and vendors can offer to consumers. They've also been really creative in trying to explore other avenues and channels. For instance, they have been running a pilot program with Kroger's where they have been powering an expansion of Kroger's digital farmers market. So Market Wagon's platform offers Kroger customers a wide range of fresh products now from local producers in certain brick and mortar locations across their system. And I think other strategic partnership opportunities like that could represent a way for Market Wagon to achieve the kind of scale and impact outcomes that they're looking to drive. Chris, let's switch gears and talk about Circuit. They're a micro transit pooled ride company that is also a great example of an intersectional solution that not only supports climate goals, but also climate justice goals. There's a bunch to unpack there. Tell us about the company and both its impact and business potential. Yeah, Circuit is an on-demand micro transit provider that uses fleets of electric vehicles specializing in pooled rides. Uh, to fulfill the first last mile gap that's experienced in cities around the world. The rise in urban traffic is putting massive financial and logistical pressures on cities, corporations, and transportation providers, and while also having an extremely negative effect on the environment. And so Circuit's last mile solution has demonstrated it can serve as a connector to public transit systems or mass transit hubs, and has effectively addressed transit deserts in places like West Dallas, where access to quality transportation services serves as an on-ramp, an on-ramp to better jobs, to access to better health services, to education. So it really touches on economic opportunity in a unique way, which we begin to fully appreciate as we dug further into diligence on the opportunity here to support Circuit. And Circuit's able to deliver all this to cities at up to 
cost savings. Fixed route bus systems, for instance, with low ridership could cost a city over $35 per ride. Whereas circuit successfully serves a city like Pompano Beach in Florida at a cost to the city of less than $3. So I find that really compelling. I hear you mentioning Dallas and Pompano Beach, Florida. I know that they're also active in San Diego. So it gives me a sense that they're picking their markets really strategically, perhaps based upon demographics or where there are transit deserts. But give us a sense of the growth plan and their pathway. Are there enough cities with this sort of a problem to offer Circuit a solid growth path? Yeah, I believe there's a massive market opportunity here. And they've began to expand beyond Florida and Texas and California and to other regions like New York. They just landed a large contract with NYSERDA. They've been active in New Rochelle. This is a massive problem. The way that our infrastructure has been built out for the transportation sector has contributed to this urban sprawl. And there's become this mismatch in where the best jobs, the best opportunities are located and where people can afford to live. So I really see this as an opportunity that can really cover a broad swath of the US. So I think there's a massive opportunity there over time for them to, in a phased approach, take this playbook, take the learnings that they've applied to successfully landing, rolling out and executing in these different cities and applying it across the country. Chris, another company that caught my eye in your portfolio is Brightcore Energy, which offers energy efficiency as a service. Now, energy efficiency isn't typically a headline-grabbing, sexy thing, but it is important, and it's an important part of the climate transition. Tell us about the opportunity you saw with Brightcore. From an impact perspective, emissions from residential and commercial buildings account for about 29% of total USG GHG emissions. And the total energy consumption by this sector makes up about 40% of overall total US energy consumption, the majority of which comes from fossil fuels. So as a result, any successful climate mitigation strategy, I believe, must focus on reducing emissions from the built environment. And these energy efficiency programs and on-site renewable energy installation projects that Brightcore Energy provides are some of the most cost-effective ways for buildings to cut emissions today, as they also reduced energy costs for the building owners. So I see that as a really compelling opportunity here. In addition to that, the Brightcore team, they're super experienced serial entrepreneurs. And in terms of co-investing alongside a firm like SER Capital, I really see that as the perfect partner to help them grow and scale their business. And of course, from a regulatory standpoint, they're really able to draft off of the tailwinds of not only legislation like the IRA, but also local city decarbonization laws like New York's Local Law 97. Let's dig in just a bit more to understand really what makes them different. Obviously, the built environment is a huge opportunity, and there are great tailwinds from the infrastructure law as well as the IRA. But tell us more about the team and what sets them apart. This team is really perfectly positioned to execute on deploying and implementing these solutions at scale. They have deep expertise in renewables, in the clean energy sector, and they have an intimate understanding of how to work with CNI customers to get these projects financed, to get them capitalized. A lot of times there's a big upfront hurdle and friction point with building owners and landowners to be able to handle that upfront cost. Brightcore has the potential and the ability to kind of handle that and help them address that issue up front. They're also able to really kind of work across a broad suite of different solutions, 
and kind of be a turnkey provider, uh, full service, soup to nuts for these CNI customers. And it's difficult to find an experienced operator who can handle the project management across a wide range of services, anything from LED swap outs to rooftop solar to EV charging carports to geothermal energy projects, and to be able to do that best in class repeatedly at scale. I know it's been a couple of years since your investment. What can you share about how the company is progressing? Brightcore's made really strong progress since our initial investment. A couple great kind of proof points along the way over the past couple of years, they were brought in by JetBlue Airlines to help with some significant upgrades to their terminal at JFK. So Brightcore upgraded the entire terminal to LED lighting solutions. And these upgrades will help JetBlue reduce their lighting-related energy use by about 66%. That's going to save more than 2 million kilowatt hours annually. So that's a significant environmental impact in terms of energy costs and reducing that terminal's carbon footprint. They also recently completed a solar parking canopy for the Connell company last year, which was one of the largest of its kind in the entire state of New Jersey. It's over 9,000 solar panels that are generating about 5 million kilowatt hours of renewable energy. That's enough to power over 550 homes for like the next 30 years. The last thing I would point to in terms of their progress, which is really exciting, is their geothermal heating and cooling line of business. It's the fastest growing segment for Brightcore, really driven by strong customer demand and attractive unit economics. The company's project in Brooklyn, for instance, has broken ground, and that's going to be the largest residential project in the state of New York to use a geothermal heat pump system. So that's really impressive. And the company sees an opportunity to drive more growth in this line of business and building a strong pipeline beyond New York and into New England in the near term. Chris, it definitely sounds like a really interesting business, but perhaps maybe not a typical venture play since it seems the opportunity is more about service delivery rather than, say, a proprietary new technology. So tell us a bit more, if you can, about the economics and why this was such an appealing investment. Yeah, sure thing, Jason. And to be clear, this was a co-investment that we made out of our private equity fund, so at the later stage, alongside SER Capital. And so a different risk return profile than what we would be looking for and targeting out of our early stage venture fund. But we definitely see and have underwritten to really market rate kind of risk return profiles out of our private equity strategy with Brightcore. And, and they continue to track towards those types of IRRs and MOICs. Fantastic. I'd love to look ahead to the future and specifically 2024s. It's coming up quickly. And I'm really curious how you both are seeing the next year. And in particular, I'd be curious to hear what you think of as the biggest opportunity drivers for the next year and spaces that you're excited about for climate tech investing. Yeah, Jason, in terms of the drivers, there's still a confluence of multiple tailwinds, despite some of the volatility in the recent past that I think are going to serve this climate space really well. Everything from the ongoing support and catalyzing of this space through legislation and policy to the increasing number of commitments we're seeing corporates make on their net zero goals to changing consumer sentiment around sustainability. I think all of that's going to continue to trend positively and drive more opportunities in the space. In terms of what we're excited about and looking for in the year ahead, we have three investment themes I'd say that we're focused on at the moment. I would categorize them as transitioning to clean energy, improving resource efficiency, and adapting to climate change. So with the clean energy transition in particular, we're really hunting for and seeking out enabling software solutions 
It might be supporting grid management as more intermittent sources of renewable energy and distributed energy resources make up a larger portion of our grid. When it comes to resource efficiency, that could come in the form of energy efficiency solutions for the built environment, to circular economy plays, to water tech. And in terms of adapting to climate change, I would look out for solutions that are focused on what we might call climate risk intelligence, carbon management, and even biodiversity as solutions that might fall into that bucket. And lastly, I would point to technologies that I think are helping to decarbonize the hard-to-abate sectors, such as the industrial manufacturing sector. As we move beyond kind of some of the low-hanging fruit, I think that would be critical that we find highly scalable solutions focused on that. Thanks, Chris. Priya, what about you? What do you see for next year? My perspective is I really sit across the investment team and get to work with Chris as well as my other colleagues who are focused on their our two other impact areas, health equity and economic opportunity. And I tend to focus a lot of my time on the funds as well. I think one of the things just in terms of market dynamics is that it continues to be an environment where new managers and emerging managers really do continue to face some of the harshest headwinds to raising these funds. I see opportunities to continue to focus on that. We see an incredible amount of talent coming to the climate investment sector, as well as some of these other ones, backing people early and helping them grow up to be very successful franchises. And during that, being able to write co-investment checks to support them to win the deals they want to win and are really great investments and really benefit from this synergy we see. And I also, maybe I'm like the person who's very aware of risk, (laughs) macro risk on the horizons. I don't always see it as like, The drivers are just the upside. In many ways, I think opportunities also come from downside. I do see a number of, I mean, obviously there's geopolitical uncertainty, there's fiscal uncertainty, all sorts of things still daunting investors in front of us. And I always welcome volatility. I don't like straight lines. I think it's the opportunity for some of the best investors to shine and the underdogs to have an opportunity to really show what they got. So that's what I'm actually really, really excited about in 2024. And what about blind spots or gaps from an impact perspective? What are areas that you think need more attention and more focus in the year ahead? And Chris, it was great to hear that the hard to abate sectors are part of your thesis, because otherwise, how does that get done if more capital doesn't go into those harder areas? But I'm curious, what are the remaining gaps and where else do we need to focus? Yeah, I can start and Priya can chime in afterwards. A couple things that I see as blind spots that definitely need more attention moving forward. One would be Funding solutions that address the financing gap for first-of-a-kind projects or folk projects. I'll be looking out for innovative, creative approaches, hopefully from a variety of sources, whether it's government, philanthropic organizations, or private sources of funding that can help companies that are moving beyond the pilot and demonstration stage really cross that valley of death and receive the project financing when they're standing up their first few commercial-scale facilities and plants. I think as more climate tech startups grow and scale, there will be more that kind of reach that point of friction and need some support to kind of overcome that hurdle. The other that I would point to, I am starting to see some more companies as well as funds kind of focused on biodiversity, companies developing tech-enabled solutions and more funds explicitly applying that lens to their investment thesis. And I think it's an important facet of climate change. It doesn't get as much airtime as decarbonization technologies. But at the same time, it's super important from an impact perspective. And I look forward to seeing more companies and funds moving forward, developing unique and creative approaches to addressing it. Priya, I'll turn it over to you. 
some of the other things that I see as blind spots or really gaps in the market is that we do see a lot of intersectionality between the need for climate solutions and the things Chris focused on, but also really thinking critically about the link between who climate change is affecting most, where you live, certain identities and demographics and income levels, and making sure that climate adaptation is also being addressed. Because the fact is that there are already repercussions and effects of climate change, and I'm not sure we're going to be able to slow things down as quickly as we need to. Everything from insurtech opportunities, as the price of insurance is going to go up, to housing, to people literally needing to move. You know, there's a number, water scarcity, right? There's like a number of opportunities just around what do we do about the effects of climate change? Again, our two other areas, health equity and economic opportunity, relate to that. We have investments in companies like Posigen that are absolutely related to climate as well as helping to create greater economic stability. Or Motsmart, as we mentioned. Yes, it's about food waste. It's also about food insecurity. We continue to believe that looking at these three opportunities together actually helps you find these gaps that just a climate-focused investor would likely miss. So we continue to do that and really excited about being one of the participants to really fill that in and, and help crowd in more capital into these opportunities. Thank you, Priya. And thank you, Chris. Great conversation. You're doing great work. So I really appreciate your time today and wish you all the best of luck. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.